Hello and welcome to Coffee with Conservationists, the podcast where I sit down with conservationists, ecologists and the occasional wildlife filmmaker or climate activist to talk to them about their work in wildlife conservation, human and wildlife coexistence, community projects and the climate justice movement. So if you've been listening from the start, you'll know all about the Coffee Connection, but if you don't, head over to our Instagram page at Coffee with Conservationists, and there's a post there explaining it all in detail. Today we've got a new coffee from Equal Exchange. At the end of the episode, I'll be talking about them, who they are, and how you can support them. This week, I sat down with Isaias Hernandez, creator of Queer Brown Vegan. Isaias is an environmental scientist and educator from the US who provides easy-to-understand, intersectional environmental content through his online platforms. Hi Isaias, welcome to the podcast again after last week's uh, mishaps. Thanks for joining us. Um, I want to start by getting to know you a bit. Could you tell us sort of about yourself and how you got into the environmental sector? Hi everyone, my name is Isaiah Hernandez and I'm the creator of Career Brown Vegan where I make accessible environmental educational content. My environmental journey started as growing up in Los Angeles, California, where I grew up dealing with global environmental injustices in my own community, such as air pollution, uh, living nearby, you know, waste incinerators growing up for the first 10 years of my life. And so, you know, growing up, I didn't have a very small understanding of what the environment really meant. The way I kind of valued the environment was a source of income in the sense. So I grew up recycling cans around my neighborhood as a form to help out my, obviously, my dad and my family during that time. But I realized that a lot of the times, a lot of the kids in my schools, we were always, like, asked to, like, be inside or slash, you know, sometimes, you know, we wouldn't really be able to be outside for long as, you know, there's always smoke. So I think for us, you know, I had this really weird understanding of what environmentalism meant to me. I think it was only until middle school, high school, where I started developing more passion for the environment as I was introduced to a lot of, you know, uh, introductory courses like earth science and earth system that talked about the earth or the crust and, you know, all of the prehistoric zones of, like, the earth itself. And I think that really spurred my interest of how that really meant. The one thing that really I failed to realize growing up is just like the interconnections between environmental justice and the community. I think that myself growing up, a lot of the kids, my own school, um, there was not really conversations happening around that. And I just don't know whether it'd be like no one knew how to talk about it or just no one really cared or no one really knew about it. And I think that like, you know, some people did know about it. I just think that there, the language wasn't there for many of us. And I think that you know, when you're a teenager, like myself anyways, like I was so addicted to like video games, so I think that really straight away from my environmental interest. It wasn't until I got into UC Berkeley where I realized, you know, I wanted to be an environmentalist, but I didn't know what that meant. I thought, you know, to be an environmentalist, you need a degree. So I entered academia as an undergrad thinking that, you know, I'm going to be learning all this. I'm going to be a very top-notch scientist. And then to my surprise, I realized that how elitism is perpetuated and the lack of diversity was in the environmental movement and courses and how the lack of representation really showcased of what the the curriculum was uh, curriculum it was taught there so it was very white centered in the sense of like it very ignored to introduce a lot of black indigenous people of color voices in the environmental narratives and 
environmental history. So a lot of it was very presented through a Western um, lens. And I think that's kind of was a lot of issues for me. So I think during that time, I attended protests myself and I considered myself an activist during that time. And, you know, was very involved in, you know, organizations like the Students of Color for Environmental Justice, UC's Berkeley's campus, where, you know, working on, like, diversity uh, pipelines or, you know, that there's um, diversity in the environmental majors. So I was really passionate about that. And soon after, I became vegan near the end of my senior year, or vegetarian, I should say. And then after I graduated, became vegan, I started living more low-waste, and then that's when I realized a lot of the terminology that I had learned in college was being forgotten. So I told myself, why don't I try to define these terms in a very simplistic way while sharing these resources? So that's how Queer Brown Vegan kind of came about in the sense of like, I felt that I had learned so much knowledge and resources from this academic institution that, you know, overcharges people and it's very inaccessible that I told myself, I need to also make this accessible. I need to make this shareable. I need to really teach this to others because I think that's the point of education is to really spread the knowledge. Yeah, that's great because I think when sort of talking to the people I've talked to both on the podcast already and just in general, um, a lot of these big topics and especially like anything to do with science a lot of people just think it's completely inaccessible unless you have a PhD or a master's and they're just like you can't be a scientist and I think that the work you do in sort of making that accessible um, is really really important and a lot of that stuff that you do alongside making it accessible you do a lot of work promoting intersectional environmentalism as well this is something that's been circulating my social media a lot recently and it's something I only really learned about and began to think about about eight or so months ago. Could you explain what this is and why it's important that all our environmental work is intersectional? Yeah, I think, yeah, so intersectional environmentalism to me, of course, is just really understanding how the impacts of environmental colonialism and colonization is throughout the world and how it has heavily affected marginalized communities that are mainly black indigenous people of color throughout the world. And I think that when we talk about intersectionality, I think we need to understand how everything is at the end of the day interconnected, right? We cannot solely just go to one's environment and assume that because of what's existing there is is that we need to fix that issue, right? But I think that we need to look back, right? So when you go into a certain area of research where you want to help in a certain environment, you need to look at the, you know, historical context, the policies that went into play, the people who live in the environment, and the people's needs, and the people's struggles right now that have happened, and I think that, like, when we look at conservation, too, as an issue, right, for example, it's sometimes, you know, very white-centered, I think a lot of conservationists fail to ignore how colonization and the enslavement of black folks and brown folks throughout the world has caused a lot of this change of landscape and environment. And if we fail to acknowledge that intersectionality, those very colonized roots of what has happened, then that means that we're failing to ignore the current environmental justices today. So I think that if we want to focus on environmental justice and the climate crisis, we need to be understanding intersectionality, however communities interconnected at the end of the day. So, yeah, as um, because I'm a cis white male going into conservation and especially conservation photography and filmmaking which is quite a um white dominated area 
historically looking at it, the env- the whole environmental sector, nature in general, um, and sort of the the industries looking after it and protecting nature haven't been the most diverse. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your experiences navigating the environmental sector as a queer person of colour? Yeah, I think that through academic institutions is very white-centered and especially it's heavily male-dominated, right, usually by cis males, but especially cis white males are usually in those environments. And I think that when we ask ourselves, why aren't there more black, indigenous people of color in research spaces, I think it's one to acknowledge the fact that there's a lot of racist white supremacy within these institutions that is upheld. And I think that, like, when you ask, like, who and for whom are these people serving to, you look at the white professors, you look at the white researchers, and you see this chain of, like, the same people are being hired, right? So if it's not being from, you know, external forces are challenging these institutions, then it has to be within. I think for myself, I experienced some microaggressions. And, you know, of course, I didn't have a very negative experience as a whole, but I did have some critiques about my research field and my experience I had in undergrad. I think that when people challenge these institutions, I think that it comes with solidarity and allyship, right? A lot of white males need to really step up and to address this inequality this issue because often at times a lot of professors are very racist and, you know, they're not really willing to really sympathize with you or slash they already came from a very privileged background, prestige, quote unquote, prestige background that, you know, they really don't really care about you and they, it's very siloed. So I think that, like, in the sense that when we ignore research and race together interconnected, I think that's something that like has to be addressed. And I think within outside of the work industry, someone who has worked outside of environmental careers, it's still heavily white male dominated. And I think that's obviously an issue because we have a lot of lack of representation. And, and I think that with the lack of representation, it also showcases in the workforce. And I think that, you know, it has to be addressed, but also it has to come within allies that are addressing this inequality. Yeah, that's definitely something that I'm thinking, well, I've been thinking for a long time that we need to work on, and I'm definitely, um, I'm really keen to educate myself more on this as a cis white male, because it's just something that I've, as I've said, barely scratched the surface on, um, and didn't really recognise when I was sort of growing up, and um, yeah, I had quite a an anti-racist upbringing. Um, I was very lucky in that respect, but I was never very... Um, the sort of systemic, more insidious forms of racism, especially in the career that I wanted to go into, were never really made clear to me. So this is something that, yeah, I'm really keen to learn more about. And like pretty much everyone who's on social media or watches the news... I've been aware of the protests happening around the world um, against systemic racism and police brutality. Just before all that sort of kicked off, really, there was the incident involving the Black Bird Watcher in New York, Christian Cooper, and that kind of catapulted um, the lack of diversity in nature and green spaces, environmentalism into the public eye. Um, one of the terms you define on your, or you break down on your website, is environmental racism, and you gave a really good answer to this last time you were on here, but could you explain what that means, a bit a bit about that? 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so environmental racism is essentially a concept from the environmental justice movement that basically looks into the policies and practices that discriminate against black indigenous and people of color. So here in the West, it predominantly, you know, affects black and brown folks, of course, and it looks into the economic inequalities and injustices that communities often face and how they're designated through geographical spaces and spatial analysis, which is obviously like these toxic facilities whether it be waste incinerators whether it be prisons whether it be sewage plants like all of these you know injustices that have been created through environmental colonialism is disproportionately affecting black indigenous people of color communities throughout the world so move we're going to move on to i mean after talking about those subjects this seems like a really like tame question now but um i think it's an important one to address because you work a lot within this whole area living a vegan low impact lifestyle um the answer to this question is probably quite obvious but what would you say is the single sort of most important thing that the average human can do to reduce their individual contributions to the climate crisis like obviously i'm very aware that the climate crisis and climate change needs radical like systemic change but just for today we'll focus on the individual what do you think is a really big step that people like the average listener can take today yeah definitely i think honestly the very first step is really educating yourself and understanding that you probably already are contributing to some environmental effort right that you just don't know whether it be through reusing your own plastics or reusing something that is based off your survival hood or being resourceful i think that's already you know, contributing towards yourself trying to be more environmental friendly. But, you know, I understand that's like, you know, sometimes people are normalized with the behavior like it's survivalhood, which is something that I obviously grew up with. And I think that within, you know, I think everyone should deserve the access and education to deserve where their food comes from. It's up to that individual then to rely or uh, understand what they want to do with their diet in a sense of like their food lifestyle. So, um, You know, I think that's, like, obviously something that's, like, up to them. I think, too, is the fact that, you know, um, you know, for myself, like, the way I went vegan is just, like, understanding my less impact of me and, you know, just, like, trying different alternatives, you know, and I think that's something that for people wanting to, like, learn more about plant-based lifestyles, like, you don't necessarily have to cut out your meat intake if you don't want to, but I'm pretty sure more people are willing to reduce their meat intake. Whether you do four times a week, you can do three times a week, right? It's not, it's very, you know, low pressure, low commitment. It's not something that, like, will hurt you. You'll you still get to eat meat, whatever you want. But I think it's very understanding that, you know, meeting your own ethics and where you're at and your own values, because I think a lot of times we shame ourselves and, thinking that we need to save the world instantly when this is a collectivized movement not a individualistic eye movement you know yeah that's uh, that's definitely important education wise because i think a lot of the people uh, that i know growing up and growing i uh, sort of know in my circle of friends and family they eat a lot of meat um, they're big meaters mm-hmm. i've been vegetarian for almost four years now and I'm pretty much tipping the point to vegan at this point, but um, it's really interesting to sort of have these discussions with family and friends as well and see sort of where their 
out with it. So I definitely agree that education is a is a big important step. We're coming to the sort of end now, but I definitely can't say we've got a good government in the UK. It's pretty much the opposite. Um, but looking over at your government, your administration in the US, we've kind of been watching almost in despair over the last four years um, from an environmental perspective. Could you describe the impact as uh, an American citizen that you've the think Trump and the Trump administration has had on environmental efforts and conservation efforts since he took office. Yeah, I think there's been a lot of rollbacks and, you know, right now one of the, I think a few weeks ago was a big concern of like him trying to open up nuclear testing again, which is obviously a very huge, it's environmental damage, it's ecocide essentially, you know, and Mm. I think that, you know, it's been affecting a lot of, like, natural resources and communities that may be nearby those communities, especially indigenous communities that, you know, are having to face off these pipelines. And I think that it's so important to recognize that a lot of these communities are already under-resourced and due to systematic racism and oppression, they need the most help and advocacy in this demanding for justice. So I think the Trump administration has very terrorized a lot of indigenous communities during this time. And I think it's up to us really to really challenge these white supremacists that are in the system itself and that have constantly perpetuated and have tried to silence these communities. And I think it's very, you know, within my own community, it hasn't been affected, obviously, in the sense of, like, it's still what it is. But I think that with other communities, it's a, very, it's a, it's a fight right now. And I think that the EPA being cut and just the whole controversy of how it's run is just there's a lot of issues within the own system so I think you know looking into community justice and grassroots organizations that have been developed for decades have been really the forefront of demanding for freedom for all and I think that like it's so important that if we're going to be working or trying to do work, environmental work, that we recognize and honor those ancestors and those people and those environments that have been doing this work. Mm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So before we finish, we're just going to do this little quick fire round. So first off, do you have a favorite animal? Yeah, I think my favorite animal is essentially the hamster. I growing up, I could never have cats or dogs, and we always lived in apartments my whole life. But I think having a hamster, which is is was such an amazing thing to have, obviously, and it was such a very unique my first animal relationship I directly had. Where is a place you like to go and connect with nature? Somewhere you sort of really feel at home in nature or the wilderness? Yeah, I think, you know, for me, I went to Seattle a few, a few uh, six months ago, I think. And I went, we went hiking. I forgot where it was, but we camped out there. And it was, it was just so beautiful. It was my first kind of real camping experience, um, and I felt very, like, attuned with everything in nature. And I think that was the first time where, you know, I had turned off my phone and put it away. It was just, like, within, you know, nature breathing or forest bathing is what they call it. And just really intaking all that fresh air and just giving, my like, my own thoughts to nature and creating this circular relationship with it. Do you have a conservation or environmental hero? Yeah, I mean, I think it was my high school teacher she was uh she did she was a chemistry teacher but she also minored in environmental science 
and she was the first one to essentially like write my recommendation letter and believe in me and was like I think you can get in and I think you're passionate about the environment so she was very the first person to really stem that more idea within my own head and um, and she also said that there needed to be more people like me um, I didn't know the term POC in high school obviously so she's like there needs to be more people like you in those spaces so it was a very introduction to what I was going to be entering. And last off, how do you take your coffee? Yeah, I actually don't drink coffee, which is so funny. I never drink coffee. I only drink coffee, I think, once in college or twice. But it, when I would stay up late, I would drink, uh, like, tea or something to help me stay up. So I think we'll wrap it up there. But before we finish, I just want to ask, where can people find you? What are your social media, online handles? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you can follow me at queer brown vegan you can also check out my website queerbrownvegan.com and you can also find my other professional work there my linkedin there so more than happy to ever connect with anyone through you know social content or asking about my own professional career great well thanks so much for coming on again um after last week yeah thank you so much george Thanks again to Isaias for taking the time to speak to me today. All the links to his social media will be in the description down below and over on our Instagram page at Coffee with Conservationists. As always, we have a new coffee to try out, and while talking to Isaias, I had a really nice cup of coffee from Equal Exchange. This is a worker-owned cooperative dedicated to the promotion of fair trade on organic production methods in coffee, and this particular coffee was a delicious blend grown by women farmers in Nicaragua, Peru and the Democratic Republic of Congo. We also brought this coffee from another local cooperative organic food shop here in Reading as we'll always aim to support small business as well when sourcing our coffee. All the information will, as ever, be in the description and over on our Instagram. So we're on to episode 5 of the podcast and I finally set out a strategy to bring you quality content incredible stories and of course a new independent coffee twice a month. In episode 6, published on the 25th of August, I'll be talking to Eleanor Jean, a Canadian documentary filmmaker and co-founder of Coextinction, a project dedicated to saving the southern resident killer whale and the precious marine ecosystems of the Pacific Northwest. Coffee with Conservationists is now available on Spotify, Anchor, Google and Apple Podcasts and a few more places So tune in on the 25th to hear our next episode. Thanks for listening. I've been your host, George Steedman-Jones, and this is the Coffee with Conservationist podcast.